The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello you wonderful lot, welcome back to Things Are About To Get Weird. For anyone who is brand new to the podcast, this is a show dedicated to strange but true stories of any and all varieties. If you're the kind of person whose ears prick up when someone says, hey, do you want to hear something really odd, then you're definitely in the right place and I'm so happy you're here. Every now and again in my research for the podcast, I come across a story that is an amalgamation of several of the subtopics I cover. And that's exactly what happened when one of our brilliant listeners, Ellie, sent me a message the other day. Ellie asked whether I'd heard about the cases of Mary Ashford and Barbara Forrest, as she knows that I am particularly fascinated by stories involving bizarre coincidences. And she attached a brief video which had an overview of the story by the creator, Papatino TV. I watched the clip and was absolutely hooked in, so I started doing some further research. And as I told Ellie, I immediately knew I had to feature it on the podcast. This tale is a mixture of true crime, there's the wild coincidences I mentioned, there are unexplained elements, and there's potentially also a supernatural slash paranormal angle to it, depending on what you believe, of course. A warning that this story does involve details of the murders of both Mary and Barbara, as you probably gathered from the episode title. But there will also be brief mentions of serious sexual assault too, so I just just wanted to make you aware of that before we begin. That said, let's head back to 1974 to the Birmingham suburb of Erdington in the West Midlands of England. On the 26th of May of that year, 20-year-old childcare worker Barbara Forrest had been out enjoying the bank holiday weekend with her boyfriend Simon Belcher. The pair had decided to make the most of the fact that the following day would be a rare Monday off work. They headed into Birmingham city centre where they enjoyed a few drinks at numerous pubs, including some in Handsworth. Earlier in the day, Barbara and Simon had spent time at St Mark's Lutheran Church in the city. They were both devoutly religious and Simon's dad was actually the pastor at the church. Barbara herself was the Lutheran Church Youth Movement's National Secretary and was clearly adored by her family and friends. She had long, dark hair which was parted off to the side and was described by her mother as a wonderful girl. By the evening of the 26th, Barbara and Simon had ended up dancing at several pubs and bars before deciding to call it a night and they walked together to a bus stop in the Colmore Circus area. Simon wanted to make sure his girlfriend got to the stop safely before he headed home himself and waited for the number 67 bus with her, which arrived at around 1am. This obviously meant the date was now Monday the 27th of May, which happened to be Whit Monday, hence why it was designated as a public holiday. This detail will become more important later on, so do keep it in mind. Now, just a few days previously, Barbara had been involved in a conversation with a colleague of hers at the Pipe Hayes Children's Home, and something she had said had struck them as odd. She reportedly told the co-worker, quote, 
this is going to be my unlucky month. I just know it. Don't ask me why. And tragically, Barbara's hunch would prove to be correct in the most terrible way imaginable. When she didn't arrive home in the early hours of the 27th of May, her loved ones knew something must have gone very wrong. Barbara was a responsible young woman and her disappearance was definitely out of character. Sadly, just a few days later, the lives of those close to her would change forever, when her lifeless body was discovered just a couple of minutes walk from her home in Erdington's Pipe Hayes Park. Her body was found in a shallow ditch in the park on the 4th of June, and it was clear that Barbara had met an awful end to her life. There was evidence that she had been raped before being strangled. This was recorded as her official cause of death and the hunt for her murderer began immediately. More than a hundred police officers were involved in the investigation, which was headed up by Detective Superintendent Mike Lenahan. And there are photos from the time of officers putting up these huge posters on trees around Erdington. The word murder appears first in large, bold letters, followed by, Did you see Barbara? And underneath, there was a reconstruction photo of police officer Linda Madison dressed in similar clothes to those Barbara had been wearing the night she was killed. The local newspaper, the Evening Mail, was also a huge part of this campaign and their logo appeared at the foot of the posters. Now, although the natural assumption would be that Barbara must have been attacked after leaving the bus at a stop near to Pipe Hayes Park, the alternative theory that she could have been abducted before ever getting onto the bus was also floated. This seems to be mainly because her fellow passengers don't recall seeing her on board, but to me this doesn't seem particularly odd if you really think about it. At 1am on a bank holiday weekend, it's fairly likely that many of the passengers would have also been on nights out, and may not be in the most observant state. Some sources do say that Simon not only waited for the bus with Barbara, but watched her get on it. So I guess the police were just trying to think of every possible scenario. However, there was also the suggestion that she could have accepted a lift from someone she knew, most likely after disembarking from the bus. And this theory was bolstered by the fact that witnesses reported seeing a blue car parked not far from where Barbara's body was eventually found, around the early hours of the 27th of May. After around three months of investigations, police finally landed on a suspect. Then 38-year-old Michael Ian Thornton, a colleague of Barbara's from the children's home. Now, as anyone who follows a lot of true crime cases will know, the vast majority of murders are committed by someone known to the victim. And this is perhaps one of the reasons detectives first started looking at Michael Thornton. His house was on Chester Road, which was very near to the part of the park where Barbara's body was found. And although at first he was able to provide an alibi for where he was on the night of her murder, courtesy of his mother, it was later proven to be false. Furthermore, blood was discovered on a pair of his trousers, and police deemed all of this enough to arrest and charge him with the heinous crimes against Barbara. But... When his trial began, it soon became apparent that the evidence the prosecution were able to present was circumstantial at best. 
In fact, Douglas Draycott, who was the prosecuting barrister, admitted as much from the word go, and by the seventh day of the trial, the judge had no choice but to tell the jury to return a verdict of not guilty, by way of lack of evidence. Now don't forget, this was the 1970s. The kinds of DNA and forensic testing techniques used today simply didn't exist, and it was far more difficult to secure a murder conviction where there were no witnesses or other forms of solid proof. To be clear, for legal reasons, I'm not suggesting that Thornton was guilty or should have been found guilty of Barbara's killing, but the problem was that no one else ever was either. Her grieving family were left with no answers after Thornton was acquitted, and as recently as 2012, Barbara's sister Erica appealed to the police to reopen the case and conduct DNA testing on evidence gathered during the course of the original investigation. Many of you know how I feel about this. I talked about it at length during our episode about the Angel of the Meadow murder. If it's ever possible for further DNA testing to be done in a cold case, I think it absolutely should be, especially when the victim's family have spent their lives in turmoil, desperate for answers. In this case specifically, the West Midlands police did comment that there were, quote, no further forensic opportunities to explore. But Erica argued that this was too vague, and that if items of evidence had been lost over the years, the police should just admit that, as it's unfair to leave the family with further missing puzzle pieces. As I'm speaking today in June 2023, Barbara's murderer has still not been identified. If your reaction at this point is that this is an absolutely horrendous case and incredibly heartbreaking for Barbara's loved ones, although not necessarily a weird story, I'd definitely understand. No account of a murder is normal by any means, but although we wish it wasn't the case, terrible stories like this one are not unheard of. But what if I were to tell you that exactly 157 years earlier, almost to the hour, a virtually identical incident took place on this very same spot in the area now known as Pipe Hayes Park, and that not only was the crime itself a chilling mirroring of Barbara's killing, but that an astonishing number of other details also matched up between the two events because on the 27th of May, 1817, that's precisely what happened. This is seriously bizarre, but completely true. And the name of the young woman whose life was so brutally taken in this prior case was Mary Ashford. Just like Barbara, Mary was 20 years old at the time she was murdered. With this being the early 1800s, no photographs of her exist, but there is a clear drawing of her which is eerie enough in itself, and that's because it shows that Mary also had some physical similarities to Barbara. The two both had long dark hair and distinctively arched brows, as well as eyes which were noticeably downturned. Whilst it's difficult to fully compare a photo of a person with a drawing of another, it definitely struck me that the two ladies shared some common features. I will put both of the images on our social media pages so you can see what you think, but the more I looked at them, the more similarities I noticed. 
Now, the evening before Mary's death, which happened to be the day Whit Monday fell on that year, she also had plans to go out dancing at a party. Although in her case, it was with a friend of hers named Hannah Cox, rather than with a boyfriend. But that's not to say that Mary was without what were referred to then as suitors. In fact, by all accounts, there were several men who were interested in her romantically. She was someone who enjoyed parties and socialising, and honestly seemed like a really fun person to be around. That morning, on her way into work in Birmingham, Mary had dropped off the dress she intended to wear dancing that night at her friend Hannah's house. She worked as a housekeeper and general servant, and the outfit she wanted to wear that evening was a far cry from her daytime uniform. The night was set to be a highlight of the women's social calendar, as the party was going to be held at a popular pub called the Tyburn House near Erdington. At around 6pm, Mary arrived back at Hannah's and changed into her dress. The pair then set off, excited for this event that they had been counting down to. Or at least Hannah was. It seems that Mary had been having somewhat of a stranger time in the lead-up to the party, and had even confided in Hannah's mother that she'd been experiencing some anxiety, saying she had bad feelings about the week to come. Not at all unlike what Barbara would reveal to her colleague over a century and a half later. When the young women arrived at the party, they joined in with all of the merriment before getting chatting to two local men. After a good few hours of dancing, the four decided it was time to head out, and they left the Tyburn house together around midnight. This would mean it was now the 27th of May. Reports vary slightly about each person's exact movements after this point, but it's believed that after initially walking down Chester Road as a group, one of the men, Benjamin Carter, decided to head back to the party, whilst Hannah Cox was ready for bed and walked herself home. So that left Mary alone with her new acquaintance. And what was his name, you ask? Abraham Thornton. It's genuinely a bit spooky, but as far as we know, he was no relation to Michael Ian Thornton. It's believed he was around 24 or 25 years old at the time, and quite a large man who was known to take intense interests in different women. It's said that after Hannah departed, the pair continued walking together in the direction of Mary's grandfather's house. Though between midnight and approximately 4am, it's unknown exactly where the two ended up. Around 4 o'clock, Mary turned up alone at Hannah's house and started to get changed back into her work uniform. She said that Mary seemed fine, she was in a good mood and was described as calm. Hannah was curious as to what her friend had been up to during her hours alone with Thornton. We all know what that's like to want to gossip with a friend about their potential romantic encounters, but all Mary revealed was that they had spent time together. Shortly afterwards, she left Hannah's home and was spotted by witnesses walking along a nearby road alone. It's awful because we know this story doesn't have a positive ending, and this was, in fact, the last time Mary was seen alive. Around 6.30am, 
a labourer named George Jackson was walking from Erdington, where he lived, to a factory near to where Pipe Hayes Park is now situated. In an area just a stone's throw from where Barbara Forrest's body would be discovered 157 years later, he noticed a pile of discarded clothing, as well as a pool of blood. Noticing two sets of footprints, George followed them to a nearby gravel pit which was full of dirty water. Certain that he was about to stumble across a gruesome scene, he tentatively looked into the pit and saw Mary's bruised, lifeless body. The authorities were alerted and Mary was retrieved from the water. It was, unfortunately, too late to save her. And as the investigation into her murder began, we see further awful similarities to Barbara's case emerge. It was evident that Mary too had been sexually assaulted before she died, though it's believed her final cause of death was actually drowning rather than strangulation. Abraham Thornton was immediately looked at with suspicion. He was the person Mary had spent the last hours of her life with, and in such a public way too. Some sources claim that Mary had told Hannah that she was going out to meet back up with Thornton just after 4am, and given that Mary was the subject of his current infatuation, it seemed unlikely that he would have failed to turn up to this second planned meeting. Just hours after the killing had taken place, Thornton was arrested and it's alleged that his words following this were, I cannot believe she is murdered. Why, I was with her until four o'clock this morning. He claimed that the pair had had consensual sex in a field at some point after leaving the party, before he walked her most of the way back to Hannah's house, and that although he'd waited for her for some time, he hadn't seen her again afterwards. But the public was simply not buying it. When the case went to trial, everyone was so convinced of his guilt that even the fact that witnesses corroborated his alibi didn't sway the locals. The jury, however, was another matter. It was so difficult for the prosecution to provide any solid evidence that Thornton was responsible for Mary's murder, and they ultimately had no choice but to find him not guilty. But this case continues to get even stranger. Similarly to how Barbara's sister Erica refused to accept that her case remained legally unsolved, Mary's brother William was having none of it. He appealed for Thornton to be rearrested and retried, and he was actually successful in bringing about a second trial. Then something bizarre happens, which is possibly why we know so much about this case, despite the fact it took place so long ago. Thornton once again pleaded not guilty, but actually took it a step further. Because of the circumstances, under a law left over from the Middle Ages, he was permitted to request a trial by combat. It honestly feels like I'm describing a Game of Thrones storyline to you at the moment. After consideration, Mary's brother William refused to take part, which meant that the case was ultimately dismissed. I can't say I blame him, remember Thornton was this really large guy. But the reason this is so notable is because it was the very last time in British legal history that this trial by combat option was approved by a judge. The statute was abolished by Parliament the following year. 
Mary was buried in the graveyard of the Holy Trinity Church in Sutton Coldfield, and it's said that fresh flowers are often left by her headstone. This is such a touching gesture, but sadly I'm about to completely ruin the one nice moment in this story with what I have to tell you next. Although it's now very hard to read, here are the words that were inscribed on Mary's headstone as a warning to female virtue and a humble monument to female chastity, this stone marks the grave of Mary Ashford, who, on the 20th year of her age, having incautiously repaired to a scene of amusement without proper protection, was brutally murdered on the 27th of May, 1817. When I first read this, I had to go over it three or four times because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. If that is not the most inappropriate, disrespectful, victim-blaming inscription on a gravestone that has ever existed, I don't know what is. Honestly, poor Mary, it's baffling to me that anyone who loved her would have wanted those words to be immortalised on her headstone. It makes no sense. But let's continue because I have no more words about that. So, when we take a step back and look at the extraordinary number of similarities between these two crimes, it really is quite staggering. Both Barbara and Mary were 20 years old at the time they were killed, and both died on the 27th of May. Barbara was murdered on Whit Monday and Mary the day afterwards. They were attacked and left for dead on the same area of land, just metres away from each other, after a night out dancing. Both women were unmarried and both were last seen alive by anyone other than their killer just shortly before their deaths. They had some similar facial features, their eyes in particular in my opinion, and the men who were acquitted of their murders in court both had the surname Thornton. Mary and Barbara both had a sibling who fought for justice for them after their cases left the courts unsolved and both told someone they had a terrible feeling something bad was going to happen to them shortly before they died. It's beyond wild when you lay everything out like that. Truly, what are the chances? This is a question that has puzzled many of those who have looked into this story over the years. And whilst many accept that these coincidences are just that, terrible parallels between two unthinkable crimes but nothing more, others have suggested that a more supernatural explanation could be involved. Like with other tales that involve these astonishingly interwoven coincidences, a name that often crops up when trying to explain them is Carl Jung. If you're not familiar with him, Carl Jung was a psychiatrist who established the idea of analytical psychology. He was also the first person to formally devise the concept of synchronicity, after he became inspired by the findings of quantum physics. Sorry, I know I just threw out a load of terminology there, but let me boil it down. Essentially, what he discussed was the idea that a coincidence is when events are linked with no apparent cause, but synchronicity is when they're linked in a more meaningful way. He himself had a lifelong interest in the paranormal, and whilst the concept of synchronicity is considered to be pseudoscience, many people do believe that in cases where the number of linked details are simply too bizarre to be brushed off, 
that something deeper must be at play. What this is exactly is unproven. Although Jung did try to dig deeper into this during various experiments in his career. Now, as you'll know, if you're a regular listener, I do believe in the paranormal, the supernatural, the otherworldly, if you will. And the idea of synchronicity is very appealing to me. I personally have a tough time accepting that Mary and Barbara's cases are a matter of pure coincidence. Could it be that this meaningful link between them was a result of a spiritual connection that transcended time as we know it? Could it have something to do with the location itself? Perhaps the Pipe Hayes Park area is a thin place, which you might remember me discussing in our Overton Bridge episode. Is there something about Erdington which caused these two parallel events to take place almost 160 years apart? I honestly don't know, and I'm also mindful that I don't want to minimise the tragedy of their cases, and the fact that the evil men who murdered them were, of course, the ones responsible. But I do think this story would give even the most sceptical amongst us pause for thought. It's undoubtedly incredibly strange. One thing is for sure, though, and it's that Mary and Barbara have certainly not been forgotten. In fact, whilst Barbara's case is considered cold, it's definitely not closed. Back in 2012, when her sister was appealing for their DNA testing to be carried out, the West Midlands Police did issue a statement saying, All unsolved cases are subject to review and this case is no exception. In the event that further information comes to light or other evidential opportunities are identified, then these matters will be properly pursued. So that's something at least. I do wonder what Barbara's family made of the similarities between her story and Mary's, and I just hope they've been able to find some kind of peace despite their lack of closure. Whether their cases were true coincidences, synchronicity, or something altogether stranger, Barbara Forrest and Mary Ashford deserved so much better in both life and death. Oh my god, that was another heavy story. I promise that our next episode topic will be a little lighter. A big thank you to you all for tuning in today, and a huge shout out once again to Ellie for bringing this tale to my attention. What's your take on this? Do you believe in general that coincidences are just that, or does your gut tell you that there must be something more to them? What do you make of these two cases in particular? I have spent hours mulling this one over in my head whilst researching this story. I just don't know where I sit with it. There's definitely more to it in my view, but what that thing is, is still a mystery to me. I can't wait to hear your thoughts over on our social media pages, which I'll be giving you the details for very soon. But for now, we're sticking with the paranormal for this week's Weird Media feature. I think this might be a first for Weird Media, because today's recommendation is for a podcast. I listen to podcasts constantly, so I have no idea why it's taken me until now to feature one in this segment, but it's an absolute gem, so it's the perfect one to take this first shout-out spot. And the podcast is Rachel Fairburn's Ghoul Guide. 
Now, you all know that I love a good ghost story and have been obsessed with the paranormal since I was a kid. So when I saw that one of my very favourite podcasters of all time was venturing into ghostly territory with a new show, I was buzzing. I'm sure the vast majority of you already know this, but Rachel is a professional comedian and hosts the podcast All Killer No Filler with Kiri pritchard McLean. I've listened to All Killer No Filler since about 2016, so when Rachel announced Ghoul Guide, I just knew it was going to be ace. All six initial episodes were released at the end of last year, and I remember listening to the first one on Halloween when I had locked myself away because I had COVID, and it was just brilliant. I actually re-listened to all of them a few weeks ago because there hasn't been word of a series two yet. I'm keeping everything crossed that Global commission another round of episodes but I enjoyed it just as much the second time round because you always pick up on new funny moments or interesting details. So the premise is that Rachel and her producer, Clarissa, head to a different spooky location each episode, and she's told three different ghost stories about the place they're in. Two are fake and one is real. Then over the course of the episode, Rachel explores wherever they are and tries to work out which tale she thinks is true. And it's just such a clever idea that's executed so, so well. I find it hard to choose my favourite episode because they're all so good, but I think if I had to pick, it would be the one in Dunwich. Or possibly Whitby, which was the final episode. But they're all incredibly entertaining, honestly. I absolutely recommend giving Ghoul Guide a listen. And if you do enjoy it, which I'm sure you will, do share the love for it on social media because I have no doubt that you'll be wishing for a second series as much as me by the end of it. And it's such a great way to show your support. Rachel is absolutely hilarious and you all already have something in common with her because she actually listens to Things Are About To Get Weird. I have no idea how to be cool about this, so I'm just going to stop talking about it before I have a fangirl moment. But I am massively grateful for the support Rachel has shown our podcast, and I really hope that you'll all enjoy Ghoul Guide. Right, a super quick run through of the sources which helped me research today's story. There were two great articles from the Birmingham Mail Online, one by Justine Halifax from November 2015, and another by Mike Lockley from June 2012. We had a Huffington Post piece from November 2015, which was super helpful, and another from USA Today by a journalist called Arden Dyer. There was a feature on the website paranorms.com by James English, published in June of 2016, which was great. It's actually a very interesting website to have a browse around in general. Then there was a section on the University of Birmingham's website, which explored Abraham Thornton's trial in more detail. Definitely fascinating from a historical perspective. Finally, there was a piece on Psychology Today all about synchronicity. There's actually quite a few on there and they're all worth reading further into. As I say, I'm so keen to hear your opinions on this story. So here's how you can get in touch. On Facebook, you can find both the main podcast page and the private discussion group too. Just search for the podcast name, things are about to get weird on there and they should both pop up. 
I love the private group. It's such a great little space and I'd love you to be part of it. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast and on Twitter, it's at abouttogetweird. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com and our Patreon page is always linked in the show notes if you would like to support the podcast that way. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you once again for being here today and for all of the love you continue to show the podcast. We have been in the Spotify UK true crime charts so frequently recently. And as I'm recording this, I think we've been on there every day for over a week and it means so much to me. A quick star rating on Spotify goes a long way and I appreciate every single person who has clicked those five stars or left a written review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. (laughs) 